The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey there, welcome to the winemakers. This is uh, Brian Casey. I'm here with Bart Hansen. Howdy, everybody. And we're here with a few guests today. We've got uh, Shauna Davis. Um, now, is that right? It's, it's spelled S-H-E-A-N-A, correct? That is correct. So I wasn't sure if it was Shana, Shiana, Shauna, uh, but we've, uh, <laughs> I've now learned it's Shauna, Shauna Davis. Yes, it is and Shauna Davis. Got, uh, ben we're S- not the only ones that have asked you that question, I'm sure, no. right? Just keep in mind, I was born in 1969, the summer of love, so my parents were busy creating... The spelling of my name. What I want to know is, did Ben have to ask you what was the correct? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, she introduced herself when I went into her cheese shop, because uh, I love cheese. And I uh, remembered it. And uh, I also know that, uh, well, now that uh, everyone, a lot of people don't get it correct. And that's the way it goes sometimes. Sorry about the... Uh, Sorry, no, that's good, and that's uh, and we've all got cheese in our mouth. That's Ben Sessions, uh, Shauna's husband, correct? Correct. All right, and uh, and Ben Ben has been a, a Sonoma Valley. You were born and raised here, right? Uh, born in Napa, actually. Okay, uh, uh, 1970, and then my family moved here in 1975. My dad was a winemaker. He got a job at Hansel Vineyards in 1973. He commuted for two years. Did you then, hear that, folks? He was the winemaker. Where? When? Uh, Hensel Vineyards, 1973 was yeah. his first vintage, uh, but he commuted, uh, and then we moved the family over in 1975. So, cool. uh, Presswood Elementary, shout out, Al Tamara, shout out. <laughs> well, thanks for coming, Ben. And My we've pleasure. Got, um, Kyle Reynolds on. Kyle uh, works at Sante with me, and he probably knows uh, more about cheese at the restaurant than anyone else I know, so I thought it'd be fun for him to, to sit in today and see if he's got uh, any input on these Beautiful cheeses that we're going to try today, and Bart went ahead and opened up some wonderful wines. I think we've got three Chenin Blancs open. We've got, um, what is that Lassiter wine? It's uh, Old Vine Zin. We've got some uh, Pinot Long Noir Dessage, open. Correct, yep. Um, we've got the Eau de Lulo, uh, uh, Morgan's Rosé, and hopefully Sean is going to teach us not only about cheese, but maybe about cheese and wine pairing a little bit, and what goes with what, and... Um, and I grew up here in Petaluma, so my journey through cheese was kind of limited. Um, Clover when I, Stornetta. When I was, well, Clover Stornetta, and, and I went to school with the Benedettis, the Gambaninis, the Antoninis, <laughs> the Dulcinis, because I went to uh, St. Vincent's. Um, but I don't remember much about cheese. I remember we took field trips to the to the dairies when we were in elementary school to uh, Clover Stornetta. I think the one over by... Nicholson Ranch, yeah, um, which I don't, I don't think is even well, it's, operational anymore. No, it's I don't know what's fire, going on there. The fire finished that off. The fire, oh, did yeah, it? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, my my introduction to cheese, besides you know cheddar and Monterey Jack, was uh, growing up in Petaluma. My aunt and uncle lived right down the street from Marin French Cheese, <laughs> and so we used to go there on weekends and sit out. And um, some of my earliest memories are the smell of Lindberger. 
Um, delicious. Delicious. Memory. Yeah. And <laughs> and 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 the cam- camembert, you know, and those. The, that was something that was always we looked forward to at holidays because we knew those things would be there. Um, and then I remember the first time that place sold and everybody talked about how they obviously didn't pass on. the. It was that thing of passing on the recipe and right. like they left out something because the old timers will claim it was never the same after that. And um, I always loved it. I still love it. So anyway, that that's where my real kind of. Wait, are you, with cheese are you talking about the cheese factory that was out, what, D out on, Street? Yeah, what? Red Hill Road, uh, Marin, oh, Marin okay. French Cheese Factory. It's still there. Um, I love that that cheese factory has multiple names and multiple addresses in right. both county <laughs> lines because everybody claims it to the, the Red and Black Cheese Factory, right. the Rouge de Noir at some right, point. Right, yeah. Rouge it's Marin French, yep. and it's bounced around and back again. And the, the zip code is Marin County, but the phone number is Sonoma County. Right. Huh. Yeah, I and actually remember going on field trips out there as a kid. I, yeah. That just oh, yeah. reminded me of that. And, that and was it Limber. called Marin French at the time? I mean, in the it was Rouge de Noir the then. Okay, yeah, yeah, and when, that's still going. It is still going. When Jim purchased it, when all the locals' hands went up in the air because they swore he was going to change it, he actually didn't change any of the crew. He kept it going, operating. He he wanted it to stay open because that cheese company did not have a succession plan, and it would be a loss to lose that creamery that had been around since the 1800s. So he was not a cheesemaker and made no claim to be a cheesemaker, and right. he drank Campari like a fish. <laughs> and I remember going out to visit him with Igvella, and they would drink Campari, and I would have wow. to be the driver. Mm. That's how lucky I was when my mentor was Igvella. Wow. So, so you know what? Maybe on that note, we should, we should take a step back because yeah. we're already jumping around. And d- would you say, does it start for you with cheese? Does it start with Igvella? It starts with Igvella. I mean, it actually goes back. My granddad was a chef, and he was a chef at Paul's Resort here in town. Okay. And him and Paul Marcucci did all of the cooking all week long, including making cheese, making meats, making all the pastas, the soups. I mean, I would beg to not have to go to school just to go cook with them. I mean, beg, fake being sick, you name it, anything I could do to go with them, especially on Fridays. As Fridays, they would drive around to all the different creameries, picking up their meats, and then they would cook all weekend. So that was like the base root of learning about really good food. And then in high school, in Sonoma Valley, any high school student can sign up for a mentor, and it's complimentary service. And most of my friends got super awesome mentors, and I got an awesome Igvella, but <laughs> my friends got to go to like the county fair and ride the carnival fairs and go to Marine World and ride the elephant, and I got to go to city council meetings, supervisor meetings, fair board meetings, learn how to balance a checkbook, what... Now, at 49, I'm super appreciative of all of those right. skills I learned. But at 15, it was a little drab. Well, so, wait a minute. I, the, the, I'm on a little departure here. So, Sonoma Valley has a very successful mentoring program. Um, I've been working in the Valley for 30 years, and I'd say I've been aware of it for 25. But you're saying that same mentoring program has been going on since um, when you were a ch- in high school? So there's Sonoma High, and then at that time there was Hot Water High, Agua Caliente, and I went to the Hot Water High. Okay. It was for the either really bad or the ones that wanted to get out. Okay. So I'm just going to take the wanted to get out right. card. <laughs> <laughs> so because the school only had 36 students, the staff was very hands-on with the students, and they assigned you a mentor after having me write, what do I want to do in my future? I want to make cheese. I want to cook. And so my mentor was Igvella. And this is as a senior? 
Freshman. Freshman, okay. Exiting eighth grade of Altamira, knowing that I wanted to go, I was assigned to Igvela. So on that, on that um, point, why don't you tell us about Igvela? Because um, we are very familiar with him here in Sonoma and maybe Northern California, but you know, we do have a worldwide listening um, platform here. So uh, go ahead. Well, absolutely. Well, Vela Cheese was actually founded with the Vela family and the Viviani family. And the Viviani family owned Sonoma Cheese Factory and the Vela's own currently the Vela Cheese Factory. And in the beginning, they were the Sonoma Creamery here on the Sonoma Plaza. And their business grew so much, and the Vivianis wanted to go more commodity, national bulk cheese sales. And Igvela wanted to go more hand-rolled, individualized cheese sales. So they split off the plaza, and the Vivianis moved to their current location, the Sonoma Cheese Factory. And the Velas moved two blocks away. And they both started shipping their cheeses nationally, out right here out of Sonoma, shipping them to... Hayward, and then across the country. And they both found their success on their different markets, and they each had a different direction. It's, it's not a good or bad. It's just how what your family choice is. So the Vivianis chose to go what I would say the Safeway Costco route, and they were extremely successful. at. You will see their brand across the country. And the Velas have chosen to do more of the artisan independent distribution route, and you'll see their cheeses and independent cheese shops on chef menus around the country in high-end hotels, and he, the Vela family is known for their Vela dry jack. It's a cow milk cheese. It's pasteurized, and Delicious. then it's rubbed with oil and cocoa, and then it's aged for three, minimum three months up to 10 years. Wow. And we, call, we used to call it a poor man's Parmesan. <laughs> and the Viviani family chose to be known for their flavored jacks. And I bet each one of us in this room and across the country has a favorite flavored jack. Yeah, there, we, there's a... There's a block of um, habanero jack that uh, Terry, my wife Terry, loves in our refrigerator as we speak. So. And I think that's kudos to the Viviani family that pretty much any family in USA can pick their favorite yeah. flavored jack, and that's success story. Yeah, and and growing up, you know, um, going back to the family holidays, there was always good cheese there, and you know, the garlic jack, and um, you know, those were those were always around. So yeah, and having doubt. the honor to make cheese, I never got the honor to make cheese with Mr. Vella because he did not allow women to make cheese in the cheese plant. What? And don't you worry that, that we didn't argue about that until about the month before he passed. <laughs> but he did teach me how to make cheese and encourage me to travel the country to make cheese, which is still what I do today. And he also was a mentor to Laura Chanel. Okay. And Laura Chanel learned how to make cheese from him, but not in his cheese plant. Okay. Isn't that, yeah, isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I've heard stories of um, there were... <laughs> Winemakers that um, didn't believe that women believed in the uh, women belonged in the cellar also, and you know, but uh, yeah. So. Well, thankfully, the Vela family has a su- succession plan. Chicky Vela is training her daughter Miranda Vela to continue to run the company, and you see their cheeses from Sonoma to all the way to New York City. Yeah, yeah. And the Vivianis sold their company, but David Viviani has resurfaced with cheese snacks, and right. he's completely ahead of the curve, and he's rocking it. And again, you're going to see these products. In every airport across the country. Yeah, yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, the power of uh, marketing and a, a fresh look on things. David has a genius brain for marketing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so, um, so you, so Igvela taught you how to make your first cheeses, and what style cheeses were those? I wanted to go fresh cheeses, and that's partly being the chef background of me. I wanted cheeses that I could use in applications on menus and pair them with my culinary items. So the first one, I, I started making cheeses in our kitchen, creme fraiche, fromage blanc, chev, and making them each Sunday so they'd be ready for Wednesday. 
And eventually, each week we had, you know, 15 to 20 gallons of cheese in our walk-in to make creme fraiche, to, to use as applications on our menus for catering. We'd make savory quiches with our fromage blanc, and we'd do the potatoes with the creme fraiche. And, and one day our health inspector comes in, and thankfully I had a good relationship with our inspector. And she's like, how much cheese do you make a week? And, of course, young and naive, I'm like, oh, you know, 15, 20 gallons a week? She's like, oh, well, did you know that's incredibly illegal? In fact, it's a, it's a felony. And, but instead of citing me, she gave me a phone number of a pl- cheese plant that I could potentially go make my cheeses in. Hmm. And so with Igvella, we drove up to Sacramento to this cheese company called Sierra Nevada Cheese Company because they make all fresh cheeses. Mm-hmm. And so Igvella didn't let me make cheese with him, but he let me really bring him along to have the power of the cheese industry. Right. I have Igvella support. So Sierra Nevada Cheese let me start making my cheeses there. And eventually I got into a co-op in Berkeley, and I'm still there 14 years later. Okay. And it's an amazing co-op. It's not open to the public, unfortunately. But it's very uh, global. We have Iranian cheeses, Lithuanian cheeses, Moroccan cheeses. And it's just a cheese? (coughs) It's all fresh. No, it's all fresh cheeses. Okay. So fetas. Chevs, Ardelis, creme de fromage, tons of uh, burrata balls, burrata mozzarella balls. But I'm always fascinated by these Moroccan cheeses that I cannot read the label. (laughs) Right. And they taste so delicious. Well, and what's different about them? Because are you all using pretty much the same milk as a base, but you're just using different techniques to. Different techniques and cultures. Uh And we each have a different market. Probably the only cheese you'll ever see on the market, I mean, unless you have a great inside culinary tip to shop at Moroccan markets, which I have yet to master. Uh, Belfiore is well-known across the country. They make mozzarella, burrata, and fresh cheeses, and they are amazing, far and lino. And so Belfiore makes cheeses that you'll see in Trader Joe's across the country, and you'll see them locally in cheese shops. And what's interesting is we each have a different market and a different niche. So there's 11 cheesemakers or 11 different varietals, but rarely do I see any of these cheeses, and they question me and my crazy antics of why don't you make cheese labels i only sell in bulk i only sell to restaurants right and that's my niche so right. i sell five pound tubs of delice de la valley which is our triple cream cow milk blended with a fresh goat milk and it has won best fresh cheese in the country twice yeah from the american cheese society which is really our our guiding force of artisan american cheese movement and the, the american cheese society hosts a conference every july or august give or take and it rotates around the country so it's Rarely in the same place twice. Well, do you want to tell people just basic um, step-to-step how you actually go about making the cheese? Um, because you're uh, a lot. Of, I think you do classes at Ramekins, correct? So we host classes locally in Sonoma and Yontville. Okay. And we actually rent the General's Daughter, which is an event center, same proprietor as Ramekins. Mm-hmm. And so we teach our classes independently. And we're lucky that the Ramekins and General's daughter allow us to teach our classes. We rent the facility from them, okay. and we set it up. I've known the owner, Darius, for a long time, mm-hmm. and he is glad to have us on site because we treat the building like our own. Mm-hmm. We also bring in a lot of global, international, and national travelers, Yeah, and we also do a lot of staff trainings for restaurants, so we're frequently bringing restaurant staff to the General's daughter, which that fills that building on a weekday morning. Nice. So Darius sees us as a great partner, if you would, rather than just a renter. So there, do I understand this right? There is an opportunity if that people were coming to Sonoma to visit, and they wanted to learn about making cheese. They could check, um, check on your website and find. We out have a website. You have classes. We do. We have a website, theepicureanconnection.com, okay. and 
shaunadavis.com both lead you to the same one right. website. Yeah, and, we, and we'll post all those on all of our social media, everybody. And at the end of this podcast, we'll hit them all again. So Great. Um, so we yeah, offer... That's, that's awesome. I mean, I, uh, you know, I... I've always known that, and I've always wanted to take a cheese class, and um, but I still haven't done it. Well, you'll so. have to join us. Yeah, that's all I need is another hobby. Another, a hobby that I don't have time for. And winemakers, <laughs> brewers, cider makers are always the ones that they're like, "Oh, this is so fun," and then they're entrenched in cheese making for the next year. Yeah. <laughs> so well, maybe don't. Of, there's a lot of similarities, I think, right? When you're talking about beer making, wine making, cheese making, I mean, it's. Um, uh, a lot sanitation, of, uh, sanitation, sanitation. Times well, 100. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, I always joke that um, wine business, we have it really easy. I mean, the beer guys, if you look at something wrong, they re-sterilize. Um, same you know, in the cheese same business. Same thing in the cheese business, I'm sure. You yeah. can be first in and you still clean and you can be last out and you clean again. Right. Well, I like that you brought up the cider business because I've been seeing a lot more of that kind of cider and that alcohol-esque brought into cheese because... Wine and cheese pairing, it's it's done, but it's always a lot harder than what you've seen with like cider pairings. And that industry coming up into the cheese cold culture is really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the oh, four, five years ago, we did a cider and cheese pairing at our Sonoma Valley Cheese Conference. We ran a cheese conference here in Sonoma for 12 years. And Bart, you poured wine several years at that. Yep, yep. And maybe you were there the year we had all the cideries in there at the General's I Daughter. So, yeah. We had an awesome class, and we brought in four cider producers and four cheesemakers and paired them for a sit-down pairing of ciders and cheese, and then we did a panel when it was more conference time. We always had a finale. If you sat through your conference well, then you could go to the <laughs> cheese fair. Okay, so let's go back to Brian's original question. Yeah, See, so John how did, and Sam aren't here. How do you make cheese? I mean, basically, because a lot of the, especially if you're making it at home, a lot of the milk that we buy these days is pasteurized. Um, but you're actually starting with an unpasteurized milk, or are you just well, adding some unpasteurized or buttermilk? For home cheese making, and they're totally like separation of church and state. Okay. So as a licensed cheese maker, milk handler, I have to have all of my raw milk go through my USDA-approved cheese plan. I cannot handle raw milk. Okay. So for my cheese making classes, I use pasteurized, so it's been heated to kill any potential harmful bacteria, but not homogenized. So I use the Strauss family creamery milk, but all of my cheese recipes that I share in my cheese classes can be made with Clover Stornetta milk. It can be made with corner store milk from the corner store in Brooklyn, which we have done. Mm -hmm. So I came up with one base recipe that I love because I teach it to the women, infant, children program, and I teach it to the interns at the French Laundry. So this recipe is open to everyone to have hands in the cheese making pot. Wow, that's awesome. And Ben and I have taught the class to to 10-year-old STEM students with the 49er Foundation. Yeah. And it just varies. It goes around. Our demographics are never repeat. So for home cheese making, I use the Strauss family creamer milk, but I would encourage you, Bart, if you took up cheese making, you could buy a raw milk or you could become an animal share holder from a local. If you're a farmer down the street, has a cow and would like to sell you a part of that cow, then mm -hmm. you can now make these same recipes with that raw milk. Hmm. So with unpasteurized milk and pasteurized, what I see when we have it in, we get to sell it to our guests and stuff. They always ask about, oh, I thought unpasteurized was illegal here. Now, from my understanding, it's not necessarily illegal unless it's on the fresh side. Like the unpasteurized that we have to sell, I found it has to be um, aged for 
I forget how, how long it is. How long is that process that it has to be aged before it's been able to sell to the public? So as a cheesemaker, we cannot release our cheeses for 60 days, and that's a 60-day law. Then it's tested for any potentially harmful bacteria, and then they can be released to the market on day 60. So it's 60 days in the U.S. you can start to sell your raw milk cheeses. So you won't really see a fresh fromage blanc chev, creme fraiche style cheese. Probably the youngest cow milk cheese in the country that's made of raw milk is the Kentu- made in Kentucky called the Aubrey. It's a beautiful cheese. It's a great name, too. The Aubrey. Aubrey. Yeah, I, I love that name. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. So that's probably the freshest cheese on the marketplace that you'll find, and it's delicious. But otherwise, people start going into, like, there's a cheesemaker in Wisconsin, Raleigh Cheese Company, and they make a Dunbarton Blue. It's a partial cheddar, partial blue. And when he entered the market 10 years ago, his family's been in the dairy for the long time, but he, his family's farm was struggling. So it's, it's, again, taking that risk and either jumping into the artisan cheese market or selling or closing, and they chose to take the risk, and he created this cheese. And it was great because at the cheese conferences, it didn't fit the cheddar category, and it didn't fit the blue category. And so he was struggling because he was kept getting these like 70% scores, even though it was like this beauty. But finally, thankfully, the American Cheese Society has rewritten their rules to welcome blended milk cheeses like mine right. and mixed forms like his. And he just won best cheese in the country last year. I That's love awesome. that he created this Dunbarton Blue because I have guests that are like, my wife loves this blue cheese, but I hate it. Or I love cheddar, but she hates it. And this has been like a niche when we have it on the che- fromage cart. Like, I get to sell this beautiful blue cheddar-y combination to these guests, and both of them are like, wow, maybe I do like cheddar, or maybe I do like blue. Like, it has allowed them to experience that flavor without being afraid. And I love being able to do that for a guest. And, and you know, there's so much of everything that we've seen, whether it's the wine business, the beer business, the, you know, cider business coming back, and now cheese... Everything was steeped in tradition. Correct. And um, it, it's experimentation and um, trying new things is what's capturing new consumers. Correct. And that's what we need is, you know, there's always more more and more producers, and you need more and more consumers to open their minds to those producers. And it takes us independent cheesemakers across the country work to work together. So if, if I met you and I was at the Fairmont and you had a guest from, you know, uh, Tennessee. And I said, well, I don't ship my cheeses to t- Tennessee, but you should go to Blackberry Farm where they make a similar cheese to mine. And now they like our cheese, and I can already reference them to a cheese similar in their region. Right. And if they said they lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I would send them to Zingerman's because Zingerman's makes a very similar style cheese. And we all get together at least once a year somewhere around the country and really just support one another. And there can be a year when a cheesemaker is struggling, may have had a recall, you know, family issues, and all of us will band together to help them. Whether it's, like, we have one, I won't use the name, but a reference is Struggling Cheesemaker. We all prepaid her few vats of cheese. So that way she can get her feet back on the ground. Yeah. We all agreed to buy a vat, so I bought, Ben and I bought 100 wheels, and she's back and rolling and back in a good profit margin. That's awesome. That's and awesome. I hope that you see that in the wine and the beer and the cider because it's very prevalent in the cheese. Yeah. That's awesome. You hear that, everybody? Yeah, I think in Sonoma you do see a lot of that. Well, and you noticed a lot of the 
those same types of feelings when we had the fire last year, that you've got a lot of um, support of each other here in Sonoma, specifically of winemakers, cheesemakers, beer makers, cider makers. Yeah, we, um, we can we could talk a whole show about how much uh, you what your fire experience was like, but uh, maybe we'll get back to that at the end. But let's did we cover how do you make cheese yet? So I want to we covered the home based <laughs> cheese making. Yeah. Right. So for commercial cheese making. We, at our cheese plant, we buy our milk from Organic Valley through the Organic Valley Mm -hmm. Milk Pool, and that guarantees us a milk price per contract, and that encompasses, we have milk coming from the Donnie D. Bernardi in Two Rock, it could be Karen Morita at Valley Ford, so we have a very high quality milk pool, we have the Stornetta Ranch in Manchester, and they're all pooled together. We don't get to claim an individual ranch because they are pooled together, although we can claim a quality milk based on the Organic Valley purchase, and then I get my goat milk from... Laura Chanel, the company. And so with that said, for cheese making, it's the simplest project process. And when we teach the classes, nobody believes that you buy cultures. So, you know, you buy your cultures from a culture house. And nationally, the best resource is New England Cheese Supply because they do ship nationally and internationally. I just shipped cultures to Hong Kong and Beijing and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And so they're my go-to place to, to send consumers to mm-hmm. because they will ship to anywhere USA. And the cultures, just last week, we taught a two-hour class, and we were able to make five pounds of chev, five pounds of fromage blanc, and five pounds of creme fraiche in two hours. Wow. With the cultures, we use Strauss Family Creamery milk, Redwood Hill Goat Farm milk. And with that said, we had 15 pounds of cheese, and the guests could not believe it. So you literally take <laughs> the cultures, and for most of these cheese, simple, fresh cheese recipes, you heat the milk to 86, and that feeds the culture at the right temperature. So you heat. So the culture is the yeast. It's the so culture of the cheese. So it, like a yeast, yes, yeah. it it's feeding the milk, the flora. Right, and, and it's what's making the it's it's what makes the change um, from milk to cheese. It coagulates correct? the milk. Yeah. Okay. Go on. And so it coagulates the milk, and so for the fresh cheese is a, a powdered culture or a liquid culture or a liquid rennet is your base, and then as you go into the more complex cheeses, dry jacks, cheddars. A Dunbarton Blue, you start going into where you add your own cultures, you add enzymes, and a rennet. And a rennet can be animal-based or vegetable-based. Most rennets are now vegetable-based based on economics and based on there's a huge artisan cheese movement for non-GMO rennet. And so also a lot of marketplaces want kosher. If you want your cheeses in New York City, they don't ask you price first. They want your kosher certification first. And that's something, yeah. yeah. And makes sense to me. And so Absolutely. first thing I did was go kosher. I, I, can, rate, I can accept that request. Right. So all of our cheeses happen to be certified kosher. So you have a kosherizer? We do. <laughs> Luckily, we have a co-op, and we have a manager that handles that, because yeah. I would not be the one to do that. Right. <laughs> so since we're talking about the cheese process, what was the first cheese for your company that you produced? Probably my first one that I made on my own was a fresh chev. Right in my first kitchen, that would probably be 1988. As I graduated cooking school and then really had, a, had my own kitchen, I purchased a catering company on Broadway, so then it was my kitchen, and I could be the king of my own kitchen table. And so I started making creme fraiche. I traveled out to uh, Massachusetts and took a cheese-making class with Ricky Carroll. At that time, she was she's still the cheese queen. That's her nickname. She wrote a book called New England Cheese New England Cheese-Making Supply Cheese-Making 101. And the book Cheese-Making 101 is the Bible of home cheese-making. And I would bet you money that most cheesemakers in the country will have one, if not two or three of those copies, one at their house, one at their cheese plant, and probably one in their briefcase for traveling. 
It's it's the Bible of cheese. Is is the artisan cheese movement or artisan cheese? Um, is it new to California and not as new to the rest of the country, or is California kind of leading the way? Otherwise, no pun intended. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you understand what I'm saying? It, it's. It, when I started to kind of explore cheese, people were like, well, they make quality cheese in the Midwest for years and, um, you know, different styles. And again, here we were, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't, there wasn't nearly as many producers. And I guess what I'm wondering is California kind of really expanding that now or are we a little bit behind the, re the rest of the country? I, I think, well, I think as the whole country, there's, is what I'd say there was the leading ladies of Chev, I would call them. There was probably a half dozen ladies around the country. So you may not hear about one in Indiana, Capriol goat cheese. If you live in Vermont, where Allison Hooper lives and had Vermont butter and cheese, or locally ours was Laura Chanel, Laura Chanel Cheese Company, or Jennifer Bice, Redwood Hill Goat Cheese Company. Right. Those ladies have all been making fresh cheese, goat cheeses for 40 years. Okay, there you go. And they're, they're the leaders of the industry. And from them, Blossom, each one of them have trained people over the years. Right. And so then we get the next generation. So I think, unfortunately, we don't always hear about the success, success stories in Texas. Right. Pure Luck Goat Cheese, Amelia Sweetheart is now third generation cheesemaker. Mm -hmm. And so uh, her mother's cheese company, Sarah's, has been around over 40 years also. So we're really, right now, seeing the quote-unquote second generation of uh, American cheese is starting to come into their own. Absolutely. And we're looking forward into the third generation. That's exactly where yeah. we're at. So the new cheesemakers are wanting to create more. They're wanting to make unique cheeses. They're not stuck in the box of making commodity cheddar or right. I only have to make this one cheese. You're seeing mixed milks. You're seeing water buffalo milk, yeah, right. sheep milk, yep. goat milk, cow milk, and blending all the milks together and making something new. Yep. So it's, a, it's pretty exciting times when you see these new cheeses being made. And, you know, we also have a future because we've had a, a large, and I take it as a compliment to the artisan American cheese movement, is our cheese companies are being purchased by European-owned yeah, companies now. Sure are. And good and bad, I'd like to point out the positive, is some of these creameries would not have a succession plan if they weren't purchased. Right. And some of these people have put their life, blood, sweat, and tears, and probably their mortgage into their companies. And unless you sell, what is their retirement plan? Yeah. And so for... You know, their options were sell, close, or B Corp. And that's becoming more and more common. B Corp is where the owners resell their company to the employees, and it becomes a B Corp employee-owned company. Locally, one of our newest B Corp members is Oliver's Market. Right. Tom Scott retired yep. and sold it to his employees. Right, yeah. And that that's becoming really common in the cheesemaking business. Zingerman's Creamery in Ann Arbor, Michigan just went B Corp as well as Rogue Creamery. Okay, so yeah. Igvella sold the creamery to David Grimmels, and David Grimmels doesn't have any children, and he's solo, so he has B-corped it to his employees. Wow. Awesome. And I was actually going to mention Oliver's, because, Bart, I feel like we live in a bubble here in Northern California in, in a way that I've always grown up with a, with a cheesemonger at my disposal. I mean, I live five minutes from Oliver's in Runner Park, and... It's just it's just a part of the store. I mean, you've got incredible produce. You've got the usually it's one, sometimes even two people work in the cheese counter, and it's right next to the wines and the beers, 
and they've got not only incredible cow, goat, and sheep, and buffalo, and um, but then they've got all the accoutrement that goes along with it. So you've got all the different kinds of crackers, and all the something to taste. Oh, there, there's always some. They're they're always like that. Anytime you know they greet you as you're as you're stepping up, and they say, you know, what are you looking for? What can I help you with? Sort of like a psalm with the wine, and and they're always willing to open something up and give you a taste of it. So, what is um what is her name that works? It is the one and only Madame de Fromage. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 I couldn't remember if that's what everybody called her. Well, yeah, she's uh, pretty amazing. Pretty she has amazing. a great palate. Yeah. Uh, who is that? The she, Madame de Fromage Colette is the <laughs> yes. cheese buyer for Oliver's Markets. And so, I, I always see her at the Montecito location. I'm sure she hits them. She all, rotates. But yeah, but that's where I always see her yeah. at the Montecito location. Huh. You would know her. And her right hand is her. Robert, who is. Also an amazing palette. Robert grew up in Sebastopol and was trained by Colette, and he now shadows her running the stores. Wow. She's heading towards retirement. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so I never felt as like a kid, you know, you grew up with with cheddar and Velveeta and and Swiss and, you know, all the usual stuff. I, I grew up where my mom took us to Cater Farms in Petaluma to get our chicken. We went to Bateman's to get our meats. yeah. 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 We went we out. A, we had a meat locker at Bateman's. <laughs> yeah, we went out to uh, the cheese factory to to get our cheese, and then um, I, I mean that was just a part of the the weekly um, errands. Well, and you uh, know, we all did that locally because it's more economical. Yeah. Well, well we and, went to the that's, to the. That's what, you know, it, I mean, in, in Europe, you can still see this in the in the small wine villages and stuff where there's a fromage maker, there's a you know bakery, there's all those things, and. Um, at some period in the United States, that's kind of been lost, and um, but I think it's coming back, especially in communities like ours, and probably communities like some of yours out there in listener um, space. But we're definitely seeing them across the country. Yeah, it's I mean, very I, refreshing. I travel around the country consulting for cheesemakers or retailers, and you know, Oregon is just blazing a trail right now. Hmm. Oregon is just blazing a trail, and a lot of Californians are moving north. And they're bringing the Northern California palette with them to Oregon. And like our friend Sarah just opened Willamette Cheese in the Willamette Valley making Briar Rose cheeses. And she's a native of Fairfax. Wow. And Briar Rose Creamery is amazing. And first thing she did was go introduce herself to Rogue Creamery. And they have supported her. They help her distribute her cheeses. That's awesome. And so once you start creating a cluster of cheeses, now it's a destination. Right. They're printing their own cheese trail map now. So, you know, Oregon has a cheese trail map. California has a cheese trail map. You Washington. Want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. The cheese trail map actually was founded by Vivian Strauss of Strauss Family Creamery. She self-wrote a grant and received a very generous grant to create a cheese trail to promote first starting Sonoma Marin County cheesemakers because we had the highest cluster of cheesemakers, if you would. So we put out our first map, lots and lots of learning curves. But Vivian took it on and created this amazing map that made it you could go tour facilities. And if you couldn't tour facilities, you could go to your preferred retailer and say, I want to try this cheese. And it really increased the sales for across the board for all cheesemakers in Sonoma Marin County. Mm-hmm. So then she took it bigger and got a California state grant. And so now there's a California cheese trail map that lists all, if you're a licensed and insured cheesemaker with a, with a HACCP recall plan, then you can be on the map. Hmm. And it's a great map. If you're driving down, you're going to go golfing and uh, Half Moon Bay, go stop at Pescadero and visit Harley Farms. Okay. If you find yourself in Modesto on your way to Vegas, stop at Fiscalini Farms. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've had that Fiscalini. You know, so That's I tell good. people, put it in your glove box, and yeah. when you're heading north, stop up north and go to Rumiano Cheese. Yeah. 
So there's cheese, and I mean, I can name around the state, but California, Oregon, Washington, Vermont, New York, Texas, all Wisconsin, of course, has an amazing cheese map. So it's definitely, and there's now there's about to be a Midwest cheese trail. What states are the largest consumers of these cheeses? New York by far. Really? Hands down. Wow. Yeah, just that's like, I mean, we we are not currently shipping our cheeses to New York City, but I have for the past 10 years, and sight unseen, I could ship as much cheese as I'd like to ship to them, and they will sell it. Wow. Wow, Wow. that's amazing. Well, what what exactly types of cheese do you make? So we're all fresh cheeses, and Uh we're venturing into some new marketplaces. So currently, we make our Delice de la Valley, which is our triple cream cow milk, blended with the fresh goat milk, and... My first two original accounts have been the Kendall Jackson Estates and the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, and they're both still with me to this day. So our cheeses rotate around different properties. So I know that we deliver to Kendall Jackson every Thursday, and then they redistribute it to their properties. It's going on the Arrowwood property this week. So they they try and keep me up to date where they're going to be serving our cheese. Right. And then we deliver to the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, and it rotates up and down Yauntville, or it goes in and out of National Las Vegas, New York, Beverly Hills. So it just depends on what the chef would like and the chefs within each kitchen. And what was the thought process with adding a little bit of goat to the cow uh, for that particular cheese? It really was truly one of those accidental stories. So I had my five gallons of creme fraiche, five (laughs) gallons of fromage blanc, and five gallons of chev. Typical Sonoma, I was making them in the five-gallon horchata jars because they're a dime a dozen here. They're easy to find. (laughs) Made sense to me. And so at the end of the week, I would blend them. I might have a gallon or two or a half a gallon of each one left, blend it, and that would be my first cheese when we reopened on Wednesday that we would start serving as a spread or put it on the catering menus. You know, chefs will use up anything to not waste money. Right. So this cheese, and then, you know, I had all kinds of names, and at that age I wanted to have crazy names, you know, menage a trois or something, and, but <laughs> I, Ig talked me into not doing that. <laughs> so um, I went with Delice de la Valley. Damn and I, mentors. <laughs> I've never been to France, so I've, I've named most of my cheeses in French which is funny, but maybe that's a little, I, I blame it on New Orleans as a New Orleans French, you know, guidance. So Delice de la Vallée became my first cheese, and then Creme de Fromage is a blend of fromage blanc and creme fraiche, and that is wildly popular with the chefs. They love it for cooking because they can infuse their own flavors. They can use it as application on a menu, hmm. on a pizzetta, on a savory pastry, in a quiche. It just has an application that chefs love in the hmm. texture. And so now we're making a new brie named Lucy after our daughter. And Lucy's her nickname. Mm-hmm. We were going to name it Karina, and she vetoed us immediately. <laughs> so I don't know how you got away with that with Dane. Maybe he was too young was to too say young. no. He was too young. Yeah, yeah. She's right. 25 now. She was like, yeah. no. Yeah. And she works in a, a national, international cheese distribution warehouse doing import-export. And she was like, that is a no. <laughs> with, a, with, with absolutely no following words. So Lucy is our goat milk brie. It's a little four-ounce round of pasteurized goat milk, and we add some extra enzymes into it so that it stays firm. It doesn't get oozy and runny, which I know most people love the oozy and runny, but I'm navigating the sea of chefs. Right. And chefs want consistent portion control, and oozy doesn't issue consistent portion control. So you can take my wheel of Lucy and cut it into 12 pieces, lay it on a sheet pan, and it stays like you want it to for the shift. And that's from the enzymes. Correct. And, and, and they're little magical crystals of magic. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, that's talking fascinating. about that portion control and Uzi, one thing that's always come up, and it's it's a random little question, but how long do you prefer tempering your cheese before serving it to a guest? 
I usually pull them out at least four hours at a time for like room temperature. Or what I recommend for home people across the country, get a second wine refrigerator and set the temperature. Because at home, you can keep it at your own temperature. In commercial kitchens like us, we have to legally keep it in the walk-in or the reach-in. But if you can pull it out, like if you have it portion control, it comes to room temperature quicker. So you see your order come in on the cheese Mm -hmm. plate, you pull it out. And because it's portion controlled, it comes to room temperature much quicker. Because that, that's one of the main questions I have from guests. They come in, they have this breather. Like, I buy this all the time, and yet I can never get it to have the same, fla- same flavor or texture. I go, well, here in, in Sante, we, uh, we don't serve any of our cheese unless it's been tempered one, two hours, whatever it, it is for that certain cheese that day. And they're like, I pretty much just take it out of the fridge and eat it. There's also the romance factor. When people are on vacation... Whatever they taste, and I'm guilty of the same pleasure. When you're on vacation, some things just taste so much better. And as a luxury resort, your guests are relaxed. They may right. have been to the spa. Right. They might have had a glass of wine. Everything tastes better when you've been at the spa and had a glass yeah, of wine. It's the classic. It's the barrel tasting thing. You know, you'll, you, you'll have some guests and you'll barrel taste them. And they'll tell you how the best thing they tasted all day was the, you know, eight-month-old Cabernet that just rips the, you know, enamel <laughs> off your teeth compared to all the wines that you're tasting. And there's something to be said about standing in the cellar with a wine thief tasting something that no one else has tasted, right? There's a romance to that. Uh, yeah. But also, for uh, for regular people, you can uh, take the top uh, part of your wine fridge and put a board in and put the cheeses on it and store it there. Yeah. Uh, you can do that at home, so you can have uh, six cheeses going at once. Uh, and then just go and pick, cut off what you want for that night, and then um, uh, it's not going to affect the wine or the wine bottles at all. Uh, but it's at fifty-five degrees is a really great temperature for cheese. And what do you guys wrap your cheese in? Working, having worked at the Grill and the Fig for a long time, and we had a nice variety of cheeses there. I I was told never to wrap in Saran wrap that it doesn't allow the cheese to breathe, and so we always had this sort of like almost like butcher paper, but I think it was cheese paper. There is cheese papers out there in different forms. Okay. And what's what as a cheesemaker, what would you want your cheese if someone buys your cheese and takes it home and they have a little bit of it that first night, what would you prefer that they put it in to keep it? So we I prefer You prefer them to eat the whole thing and buy another yeah, one. Right. Correct. Day. That's true. But in reality, if you're at home, if you have a cheese dome, like we always have cheese and a cheese dome on our butcher block in the kitchen. But not everybody's willing to do that, or the family doesn't allow, or you know, just because of space and. So you mean just left out at room temp? For aged cheeses, cheddars, even some of my breeze, for the fresh cheeses, for fresh like my Delice and Creme, I I do pull them from the refrigerator Mm -hmm. because they are meant to be a fresh cheese. But for some of them, I would recommend, you know, the breeze maybe out for an hour, leave them, but I store them in a Tupperware container that isn't sealed. Like a, we call them commercial cambros, plastic tubs with lids that don't seal. And you can go to any restaurant supply anywhere in the country because it allows a little air and breathing. And my totally cheap trick is I use sushi rollers to layer my cheeses. It's the oh, best. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the best cheese layer in the world. It lets it's, them breathe. It lets them breathe. And cheesemakers yeah. all around the country, it's funny, we all hoard sushi rolls. It's the funniest item that we order because you can layer your cheeses on them so for instance we have an account starting next week starks restaurants Mm -hmm. and they're actually they're going to be our trial we're actually shipping with no wrapping in plastic tubs sealed 
like we'll seal them for travel. Yep. But they're going to be layered with the sushi rolls and they're going to do a deposit using that Strauss Creamery concept. Right. That we're going to give them the container and then the next week when we deliver, they're going to give us the container back and they're going to pay a deposit on the rollers and the containers. And then, and that way we've, we've really greened our experience of our cheeses. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. So ideally I would like to not wrap them in plastic. Because what happens if you're wrapping it in plastic? What is the drawback to that? I'm going to be the one on the fence. I'm not anti-plastic wrap, okay. so I'm not militant about one way or the other because I'm also looking at, if I delivered a dozen cheese to the Fairmont unwrapped in a box, it would probably get lost somewhere with no label <laughs> on it. And no offense, it's just the, the volume of business. So for them, I would still recommend wrapped in plastic. And with the right kitchen staff, I would suggest when this arrives, unwrap it and put it in a Cambro. See, with the plastic, I'm never sure about it because I think of cheese as like a living thing, right? We're having these beautiful molds that are creating these beautiful cheeses. And I feel that sometimes when you have someone that hasn't wrapped cheese before that puts on 20 layers of that plastic wrap, you're pretty much just taking all oxygen supply and, and kind of killing the cheese if you're not careful. I would say it doesn't kill it. It just stops it from breathing in a sense, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't kill it. It's still going to have the I mean, flavor that it started with. And we do need plastic wrap and sanitation and safety in the cheese transportation and handling of cheeses. It's a fact. Yeah. And for those of you out there that buy cheese in a, your cheese shop or your grocery store, it's wrapped in plastic. You can come home, open it up and the aging process or the living process is will restart again, right absolutely and then you can decide how to wrap it and you could get tupperware containers i mean i have some of you know the i know ladies that store their cheeses on mason jars because they can pierce a hole in the lid because they like glass and not right. plastic right mm. and as i like to tell i like to be the friendly cheese person be like if you want to use glass and you want to have 12 mason jars you should totally do that <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not, the end of world is not my end of world with a piece of plastic holding my cheese, but I get it. There's people out there, the glass only. You can also get a stainless steel half rack, half right. pan, half sheet pan and use it. They have lids and yep. those are great. So if you don't want plastic and so anywhere USA, you can go to a restaurant supply house and I use webrestaurant.com because it ships everywhere in the country and I'll actually, I'll sh like I'm having an order shipped to Tennessee because I can order it from here in home in Sonoma and my order will arrive in Tennessee or New York or Texas, wherever I'm going. So just for your listeners, it makes it easy. You can go online and order your supplies. Right. And I've got an interesting <laughs> question for you because this is something that kind of blew my mind. Um, oh, having been a, a student of wine, you kind of know that this. There's, it's always one of these discussions about soils and soil types and how it actually you get the flavors in the wine from the soil types and... Um, with cheese, it was something I never really thought about until, I mean, this is just recently, maybe three years ago or something. Someone said to me, well, this is a, this is a summer cheese or this is a, a spring cheese. And I was like, what are you talking about? They said, well, you realize that, you know, you drive around here in the, in the winter, the grass is green. And in the summer, the grass is brown. These cows, sheep and goat, they're eating that. So don't you think that's affecting the flavor of the cheese? And I honestly had never thought about that before until they said that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. So tell us about a little bit, if you can, about the sort of the relationship about, you know, the different seasons and how that's affecting the flavor of the cheese. Oh, or, is it, or is it actually, a, do you make different style cheeses depending on the season? All of the above. So there is a difference in flavor. Like the first week you open your pasture back out to the goats and the cows, they frolic and like 
bucking Broncos because they're so excited to be back out in the green pasture. And, you know, with good humor on my Facebook feed is all my friends with goats <laughs> releasing their goat videos into their fields. I saw Pure Luck this morning. I saw Harley Farms this morning. So they're letting their goats into the pasture for the first time. Right. And that will be their spring milk, and that cheese will truly have a green, grassy flavor to it. Right. And you'll have a cheesemaker like Dunbarton Blue. So for the green months of the year, he is a raw milk Dunbarton Blue, just to keep it totally confusing. And then in the winter, what he calls the brown months or what he calls the ice months, he's grain-fed and he pasteurizes it because he doesn't like the flavor of the grain. He likes to oh. pasteurize a little bit hmm. to get the grain flavor out. Interesting. So he actually goes truly by the season, and that's not uncommon. There's cheesemakers that make spring cheeses. You know, uh, we're heading out to Blackberry Farm next month, and we're making a collaboration cheese. So it'll be spring cheese milk. So because they're a little colder than us, so they're spring by the time we get there, will be some of the first milkings. Then we harvested mushrooms from the Mayacamas Ridge and the Occidental Ridge, and we're going to bring them back to Tennessee with olive oil from Sonoma and Napa, and we'll, we'll grind them up, powder them, emulsify them into our olive oil, make a sheep milk cheese. So the sheep milk will come from Blackberry Farm, and the olive oil and the mushrooms will come from Sonoma, Napa County, and we'll rub each little two-pound beauty with our emulsified wild mushroom olive oil. We have yet to come up with a name. <laughs> oh, wow. And so I, I think, as far as Chris Osborne and I can tell, this will be one of the first collaboration cheese-making projects, and then we've already pre-sold these cheeses to our two key accounts to have them I was go just back about to, to ask, how do we get some of this cheese? Exactly. <laughs> but it's gone. It's already, it's not you haven't gone. even made it yet, but it's sold. Well, it's, what we did is we opened it up. It's a way for retaining customers. It's to our pre-existing clients. Right. And that we, it's my job to come up with new ideas to retain clients, to have them continue to order so that they then order. Right. But of course we're going to take new clients, you know, but it goes in the order of when, how much they order. Yeah, I'm already thinking of wines that can go with that oh, uh, totally. cheese. Oh, with the mushrooms in there? That's Beard or Right, I mean, that right away, it's that, got that, that comes to mind, right? And then we're, I think I'm going to sprinkle, um, we harvested some peppercorns from Hansel Vineyards. So we have fresh, locally grown peppercorns. We have the wild mushrooms from the Mayacamas Ridge. Right. And so it sounds like a little Hansel Pinot might make its way into your glass. Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it's all organic, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hensel's oh, recently gone biodynamic, so oh, I didn't know that'll that. be an additional certification to their winery. Wow, so they're going to get uh, Demeter certified? Yes. Wow. They already so have the animals, the farm. They've been working on it. They well, actually have sheep uh, in the vineyards. And pigs. Right. Uh, right. So the sheep are going through the vineyards and eating the uh, uh, what's in between the rows. The cover right. crops. As right. opposed to uh, using tractors. Yeah. And I'm thinking of going out this weekend because it's fava blossom time. Oh. And so every year I make a fava leaf pesto, but I'm thinking of taking fava blossoms, dehydrating them, and then taking them out with me and doing a fava blossom rub on a cheese. And I'd like to thank Igvella for showing me that you can rub just about anything on a cheese if it's a hard cheese. And then I'm thinking of packing a Gravenstein apple cider with me and doing a cider rub. And basically Chris, Chris Osborne and I have 72 hours of let's make cheese and play because that's all the time we got. Right. And so we're going to fly out either late Sunday night or Monday morning, arrive Monday night and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, make cheese and fly home Friday. Wow. We would have stayed longer, but you know how schedules allow. Right. <laughs> right. Well, Blackberry Farms has uh, been hosting the uh, Hospice to Roan, um event, uh, I think, for the last few years. I think um, 
um, Sandra and a bunch of people flew out a couple weeks ago, and now we're going down to the hospice drone here in Paso Robles uh, next week, week after. Uh, by the time this show comes out, it'll probably be we'll probably be yeah in that week or yeah. or coming home. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if Bart's uh, planning on heading out with me. I know Ian, who uh, um, almost made it here today from the French Laundry. Um, and, uh, he's planning so on going is that's what I, I think, uh, Ian's planning on going and, yeah, and Sam as well. Down. Um, Sam out on assignment today, John out on assignment today. Um, um, so can you talk about, um, your friend, is it Cap- Capri- Capriol goat Capriol cheese? Capriol goat cheese. Absolutely. I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to say that the cannonball wa- Wabash cannonball is one yeah. of my true favorite goat cheeses in the country, like hands down. And what is it about it that, that makes it your favorite? It's the texture. It's the texture. It's pillowy and delicious and oozy. And if it was on my cheese card, I'd have a heart attack because I would have no way to portion it beautifully. Well, it'd be one of those things, if you put it on the, on the mat, it's one of those cheeses that just kind of melts in between the mat. And you actually lick the mat when no yes. one's looking. So for listeners, it's the shape of a cannonball, the original cannonball from the Civil War, the Wabash. And that's where Wabash in Indiana... And Judy Shad has been making cheese for over 40 years there. And she makes all kinds of very southern cheeses. She makes a crocodile tear, which is the size of like a small hand, but it's shaped like the tear of a crocodile, she says. She'll make up a great story. And then she'll give you bourbon, and you'll believe every story she tells you. (laughs) She has a bourbon wash cheese made with Pappy Van Winkle. I mean, she is a legend, and she is an amazing cheesemaker. But the texture just reels me in. I mean, if we're in a cheese shop and I see it, I need to buy cheese like I have a hole in my head, and I will still buy it. I love the rind of this chef. Like, just yes. looking at the it. The wrinkly. Like, yeah, that wrinkly, that, that is it charcoal or, or ash it's that ash. she used? Just the look of it and that kind of tang that it adds to the to the cheese. Like, I fell in love with just seeing this cheese before I even got to enjoy well, it. Well, and it has this creaminess. And then the creaminess almost turns to like a tannin, like a wine And it can tannin. hold up with a red wine. If any, oh, absolutely. And if anyone yeah. would pair it with a red wine, it's a beauty. So I love it because it can start off with a champagne or a Sauvignon Blanc and be a beauty. And it can finish with the best pinot you've got on the table. And when I do it on a cheese cart, which is possible, I cut it when it's chilled with a wire. And I portion it into eight wedges. Mm-hmm. So I cut it in half, like imagine cutting a softball in half. And then laying it flat face cut side down on a piece of wax paper and then cutting it in four right. and then taking those individual four pieces why have they have not oozed yet and putting them in a small ramekin that you can see the sides of it and then putting it back in the fridge so the ramekin keeps it contained and each guest gets their own oozy right. deliciousness on the ramekin well i love the layers of texture with this one too because you have that kind of ooziness right between the rind, right between the inside that's a little bit firmer, kind of creamy, kind of crumbly. And then the rind, again, just always draws me in. It's got just both of those textures all intertwined. It, it's it's, it's soft. It's gooey. It's perfect. I would totally agree. And it's one of those cheeses that don't fit in a category at the American Cheese Society. Right. It doesn't fit, which all of us cheeses that don't fit in a category, we got to stick together. Absolutely. So, and, and Judy Shad and Allison Hooper, who owns Vermont Butter and Cheese, they made shirts a couple American Cheese Societies ago, said, you know, wrink, wrink, wrinkles, what, oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, what is it? Wrinkles are the sexy of the cheese industry? Wrinkles are sexy. Wrinkles, wrinkles are sexy. Wrinkles are sexy. 
and these ladies are in their early 70s gracefully saying wrinkles are sexy. That's awesome. And awesome. they all make cheeses with beautiful wrinkles on them. And where is this cheese available if someone uh, wanted to buy some? They actually have a national mail order. Okay, so and you can go to a website? Capriol Goat Cheese, mm-hmm. in which, Bart, since you said your listeners are national, I made mm-hmm. sure to bring a cheese that is accessible to everyone because it's not really fair if I only talk about cheeses that are only available right. in certain places at certain times on a full moon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and do they just ship it with an ice pack or with dry ice, or what are they? Ice packs wrapped in straw in a little wooden box. It's actually a, a great packaging that oh, they nice. ship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you can use the box after as, you know, a, a gift Oh, they're totally, they're made locally Put your there. weed in it. <laughs> well, she you, would. You could, you could also I, reuse the ice packs because uh, they're reusable. Okay. Uh, so you can store them in your fridge. If you're going camping or something like that, you can reuse yeah, them yeah. all the time. Absolutely. Has, has, you know, has there been any um, cannabis, um, since we are in California, and, you know, huh. has there been any cannabis and cheese um, experimentation? <laughs> it's very close in the room. Yes. So, in other words, maybe putting leaves around the the wheel, maybe doing a little. Uh, I'm playing with emulsified cannabis. Just have to. I need to work with a scientist to understand which has the least, you know, effects. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, actually no. want. And and I kind of said it jokingly, just yeah. because it seems like everything. So now I'm actually totally serious. It. Yeah. No. But but I mean, well, why not? I mean. Everybody's trying to figure out something to do with it. Well, I just met with a new client who wants to pair their cannabis with wines. Right. And I don't smoke, so I told the gentleman, and I don't care if people smoke, I just don't. Mm -hmm. But being a self-employed businesswoman, I'm like, well, let's talk. Right. So I asked him, I gave him a set, I emailed that guy, Ben, and emailed him some set of wine notes that that I enjoy. You know, we all in the industry save notes when we see something well done. Yeah. And so I scanned them and emailed to him, and I said, here are some of my favorite wine notes, and I include, included flowers, Yeah. Uh, Mary Edwards, that brochure that we got in the mail the other day, yeah. and I said, here's some of the top descriptions of beautiful wines. Right. Describe your cannabis between your different fields. If you have a Mendocino one, a Trinity one, a Humboldt one, describe it to me in those flavors, if it's chocolatey, if it's black pepper, if it's... Now, talking about cannabis, are you going for effect or just the flavor profile? No effect flavor. So it, it's funny that you bring this up because we just brought in a new alcohol from hum, Humboldt that's uh, cannabis infused. And so we're doing that, that big earthy undertone from uh, more of their hemp and more of their seeds. And you're seeing that progress exponentially now of just the flavor profile you can get from these plants into, say, your cheese now and your alcohol and your wine. It, it's an industry that I think is about to explode. Absolutely. Sam's Sam's like listening to us right now. <laughs> Two <laughs> weeks later, going, oh, I should have been there. But, Sam's like, I can combine my right. two of my favorite things. So you know, on <laughs> you that, I, I I I know Sam's heading to New Orleans for a wedding, and um, you and I, um, when we first met, we had a good conversation about New Orleans because my musical. Um, uh, Learning about music came from someone who's very passionate about New Orleans. And and what is your connection with New Orleans? Because when you had the store, there was no doubt that there's a, a direct correlation. A direct correlation there. Absolutely. So I did my chef internship in 1988 at Commander's Palace. Wow. As a young intern, and I definitely earned my internship there, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I made lifetime friends out of it, though. 
So little, I, a little known chef, uh, Emeril. Yes, Emeril was the lead chef at the time. Oh wow! And I have to say, he was a gentleman in the kitchen, and we still work with his Emeril Legacy Foundation, and periodically we'll be paired together for events because of the history. And last year we did an event for the Jimmy V Foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Emeril Lagasse sent a group out, and then Ben and I shared Napa wines and Sonoma cheeses with them. And it's it was just a favor. He's like, I have ten of my VIP. We, we all have our VIP customers, and if someone in the trade calls you from across the country and says they're going to be there, can you take extra care of them? Right. You do. Yes, absolutely. And we're so glad we did because it's the called hospitality. The Airbnb house that they ended up in. Well, yeah, we just didn't have words to put to it. It <laughs> wasn't quite what they were looking for. <laughs> and so we called Emerald's assistant, and we relocated them before they even got here. Wow. Because yeah. it was kind of dungy, which I was totally surprised in Napa. Yeah. We were driving up to it, and we questioned the GPS, the address, and we got them relocated because they were having a weekend of you know eating up and down Yauntville and right. going to be dined, and the house didn't even have wine glasses. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> So we took care of it. So, you know. Absolutely. We had to drop wine glasses off, and then uh, we dropped off uh, food for them. Provisions. Yeah. Like, there was no bottled waters in the house. Wow. So, anyways. But Emeril Lagasse and I go way back to then, and we stay in touch in a roundabout way. And um, we actually like to connect now through philanthropic projects, through yeah. the Jimmy V Foundation, through the Emeril Lagasse Foundation, the Strajewski Foundation. Steven Strajewski is a good friend of mine who I met through cooking in New mm-hmm. Orleans, and he owns Koshan and Butcher, okay. and the new restaurant, Pasha Seafood Restaurant. And so Stephen Strajewski will be our guest chef next year, our national guest chef for our Yauntville Cheese Festival coming up. And I was going to say, you should definitely talk about that here. So um, we, are, out we are founding the first annual Yauntville Cheese Festival, hmm. and I've been quietly planning it for three years since I sold my cafe because I wanted I ran a cheese conference here, which was truly... 80% educational with if you did good, you could attend the, the cheese fair and have wine with Bart on Sunday. But you had to sit through four or five days of education just to get to the finale. So <laughs> I'm actually switching it backwards now. I'm doing 80% fun with a class on the, fr- on the Saturday morning. Now you morning. got my attention. <laughs> See? Yeah. So we're going to be located in downtown Yauntville on May 18th, 2019, a year from now. And we have chefs coming both local and national cheeses local and national we're but we're also taking on that next level supporting the incoming generation being a mentor and looking at who's coming in next so we're sponsoring a farmer a cheesemaker a vintner a brewer and a cider maker yeah and so those will be our sponsor they don't have to pay to have a table they don't have to they get covered to be there Mm -hmm. so we're having a beer made for us by uncommon brewers in santa cruz awesome alex defensky and he's a sonoma boy Mm -hmm. so we have him we have farmer Rachel. She has Lunita Farms. She just relocated to Napa after the fires. Okay. So all the more reason to support her and her new endeavors. Absolutely. Moonside Creamery out of Petaluma, a brand new cheesemaker located in Bodega. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's our responsibility to embrace and raise up the next generation. That's really going to be a whole part of this new festival. That's awesome. And so that'll be a really exciting. It'll be in downtown Yauntville at the Yauntville Community Center. And then we'll have dinners up and down the valley for the weekend. And so what does that mean if people, sorry, Bart, if, if people get tickets and then they go to this event, so there's going to be, it's going to be in a huge building and you'll have different stations set up with all different uh, cheesemakers that they'll be able to taste the cheeses um, and then also cider, wine, beer available, or is that something, yeah, Ciders, all, wine all, and beer. all on the same, uh, same spot, same building. 
Wow. So we're actually going to go against the grain. We're purposely keeping this small, as we always have kept our Sonoma Valley Cheese Conference small. So it's going to be 500 people total, including the 100 probably purveyor, guest producer yeah. workers. And then we'll have a wine bar, a beer bar, and a cider bar. And then we will have food stations. But we're not going to do the regular alphabetical A through Z in a single line. Right. No pushing, Perfect. no shoving. We're actually going to create little rounds. So you'll go into a round area, like a circle station, and there'll be a cheesemaker and a farmer and maybe a charcuterie producer. And when you leave that cluster, if you would, you will have experienced a whole, a whole experience yeah. of culinary, you know, cheese-centric. Right. A, right. Par- a pairing, yeah. essentially. And then you'll move on to a different pairing. Right. Yeah, and that's s- awesome. And <laughs> actually, the beer, wine, and cider is there, but it's not the highlight. And that's a lot of licensing with the Napa County and also... Right. releasing my alcohol liability right and we can't have winemakers pour right. so we're hiring a catering company to run the wine bars and hand selecting our bartenders right, right. yeah and, and spirits too oh yes we do have some spirits coming too oh cool so wow. it's so we're really taking it to a new level i think yeah and the chefs are super excited you know That's any, awesome. the chefs are excited the farmers are excited and, and when i start getting farmers being like I thought it was going to be this month. And I'm like, there's no way I could pull that together in this month. <laughs> so it's definitely getting getting some buzz. So so I, I want to just, we're kind of going to wrap it down here. But I'd like, if you don't mind, um, I want to thank you for all of your work, both of you, um, through the fires. And, thank you. And um, I think you're probably still working on that. Could you talk, do you want to talk a little bit about what you guys did? Your, what sure. your own little part of it was? Yeah. It was pretty phenomenal. Thank uh, you. I'll start. We uh, we got evacuated. Uh, we had a bunch of cassoulet uh, that we were going to use that week, uh, and so we were at the Snow Valley Inn in Sonoma, uh, and we basically said anyone who wants food who's staying at the hotel uh, can come get food because the restaurants are closed. Uh, we then did that. We raided other chefs' kitchens. Because uh, their they, their power was out, their walk-ins were dying, and, and so you know the food was going to go bad anyway. Uh, so it was it was still you know they kept their doors closed because they're really smart, and then use that food and cook that, and then it spiraled uh, up spiraled to by ten uh, <laughs> by th- five thousand, but yes. Because we were feeding about 200 people at the time, and then we ended up feeding about every day. And then we're feeding about 5,000 people every day. Wow. Uh, and uh, we have a great uh, commitment. Uh, uh, Facebook was great. Uh, Amy's Fine Food drove a truck up here, and the Seha family uh, donated their space for the, for the, it was canned food, but, you know, food's food. Yep. Uh, and theirs is good, actually. Uh, and, they, the Seha family was very generous. It's um, like, tell us when you're coming up to pick it up. And so we had, we had some great volunteers. Uh, Scooter uh, and Bob, Bob Shays, a retired uh, fireman, and they both have trucks. And so we'd load the trucks up in the morning and then take them out and deliver the food to people. We just did our last delivery just this past Wednesday. You did, really? <laughs> for, for our final 2,000 cans of food. And we delivered them to Pat's Copy World, and she redistributes them to families in needs in Sonoma. Yeah. But overall, thanks to Facebook, the company Chefs, right. and Amy's Fine Foods, yeah. and SF Chefs Fight Fire, founded by Tracy Desjardins, yeah. and yeah. Kendall Jackson Estate yep. and Winery, between those, we put out 220,000 meals. Wow. wow. 
So, and that wow. was with no thank pay, you. no financial exchange. And so we're doing a thank you party for our volunteers and donors upcoming this upcoming month in May. Nice. Hey, and Bart, since this is a, um, yeah, thank you very much for that. I know, um, a lot of us did some did a little bit of work during the the fires and the week after, but to hear that you were doing that up until last week, um, that's amazing. Yeah, thank awesome. you. Um, that's awesome. Well, we lost uh, three months of work, and so we did work instead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you don't want yeah. Shauna Davis to sit still and not do anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think that'd be bad. <laughs> no, well, it would be bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> And being that this is a wine podcast, I thought it would be kind of cool to tie this in. Will, will you? People are always curious when they're when they're having wine at wine and cheese. And what's interesting at the restaurant is I mentioned to people when they when they sit down at the table and say, you know, we've got this beautiful cheese cart. We've got anywhere from twelve to sixteen types of cheese. Um, you know, some French, some local. Um, some people. You know, I find a lot of people here like to do cheese as an appetizer. They like to bring it over first and do cheese before they have their entrees. I think in Europe, you know, a lot of times that comes with um, after dinner, either be just before dessert or as dessert. And so I think the wines that you have with those cheeses end up being different because of that. A lot of times when they're in there having it as a first course, they want to have something that's, uh, you know, a white or a sparkling, whereas with uh, as a dessert... People are generally go looking towards those sweeter style dessert wines, um, but I'm sure you've got a ton of experience between the two of you with uh, pairing wine and cheese, and just some general advice of what you think goes with what um, uh, would be helpful. Absolutely, I mean, I had already thought about the wines that you brought out today for your show and our cheeses, and I again, I like to be the fun cheese lady and not tell you that you have to have your cheese yep. right here, right now, course one or you have to have it at right after dessert. Absolutely. So I, I like to refer to it as the amuse-bouche cheese course. Mm. When you feel you're ready to have a cheese course, I think that's the best way to have a cheese. So if you had your salad, you had your soup, and now you feel like a cheese course, ask the sommelier or the maitre d' or the waiter to select two or three cheeses. You don't have to do 20. Right. <clears throat> and I find sometimes when you're, you know, you're not starving and you haven't eaten yet or you just want to have the glass of bubbles so the cheese is just an accoutrement. Yep. And if it's dessert, you've probably drank a few glasses of wine. Your palate has been infused with truffles and filet mignon and everything. So your palate's tired. Yep. I like to drop in somewhere midway. And I call it the amuse-bouche. And I, think, I hope it becomes more of a trend for cheese courses. I know it would take training for staff, but I really like to infuse it where the guests may enjoy it the most, especially if they brought their own wine. And is that is that... A particular style of cheese, or is that a selection of cheeses? Selection to, to show the differences. To show the differences. Yeah. So, with the wines today, we have two Chenin Blancs, and I love Chenin Blancs with fresh goat cheese, light bloomy Rhine cheeses, breeze, light young camemberts, not overly strong camemberts. Yeah. yeah. We have a beautiful rosé here today from Bedrock, and I love rosé with. I actually like it with a like a almost a Gruyere. I like the crystallization, the saltiness. Yeah. Gives a contrast to the rose, yeah. the rosé, and I, I also still like a brie. A brie, like the florally flavor, goes really well with a rosé. And then we have a deep late harvest Zinfandel, which, I mean, that would be married to dry jack, wouldn't it? I think so, yeah. The cocoa on the exterior, yeah. but also a really aged cheddar. And I'm not afraid of a very simple accoutrement like a cherry. 
If you if mm. if you said, you know, I made this wine, Bart, and it has a a strong tone of dried cherry, I would just give like one or two dried cherries with the piece of cheddar for them to enjoy with the Zenfidel and make it as friendly as possible so that they might actually go home with your bottle of wine and seek out an aged cheddar and be able to buy some dried cherries in the bulk. Right. And I find if we make it presentable and approachable that when they go home to Kansas, they can actually still right. recreate it. And right. that's actually yeah. an important ex- part is. of an experience. If, if they can go home to anywhere and recreate the scenario that like they're on vacation, they've been at the spa and they had a great time, and now they can go home and recreate that experience. That's, that's that to me is a perfect about. pairing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so for the we have some nice Pinot Noir here from La Crema, and La Crema actually serves our P1 Double Cream Brie with this Pinot Noir. Interesting. With a yeah. dehydrated dehydrated estate grown grapes. Oh, okay. Wow. So that's during harvest cool. season, they dehydrated them, cryovac them, and stored them for the year. And that's Chef Justin Wangler, and it's a beautiful pairing. I've never had dehydrated grapes. That's interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, somewhere along the way, and there's always, of course, now that we have the internet, there's too much information out there. There was an article that went around, and it was questioning, like, do wine and cheese really belong together? And this person made this argument that they really don't. Can you dispel that for me? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think pretty much anyone I think, can. But I think we already dispelled yeah. that. But I think your son you, can dispel have that you ever for us. Heard, have you ever heard of such a thing? There is people out there that they say do, cheese yeah. and wine. They say the acidity of the cheese, or the, or that a lot of a lot of times they say the cheese takes away from the wine, and you know vice versa. And there's a few cheesemakers out there and, that don't drink that don't want their cheeses paired with wines, and and they're out there in the country. Yeah. You know, communities that don't drink, so they're very adamant about their cheeses not being paired with wine. And right. then I say, well, do you want to sell your cheese to resorts that serve <laughs> wine? Right. That's entirely your choice, and that's up to them. That's not my call. Absolutely, absolutely. But there is several pockets in the community, cheese community, that will not sell to places that serve alcohol. Yeah, that's huh. interesting. So yeah. I think it comes from that end more than anything. <laughs> I know. You know what? I just... I've been wanting to ask that question ever since I saw that article, and you were perfect answer. There are uh, many opinions. Uh, right. Matt Kramers was great. He's in Burgundy, and he said they brought out this 20-year-old Burgundy, and they served it with a poix, which is really stinky. Yeah. He's like, you're ruining it, <laughs> the wine. I mean, right, if you right. have a cheese cart and you're really and, not and, sure... I like yep. Matt a lot, and, right. uh, and and he's correct. It you know, sometimes it's uh, uh, it's the food and wine, and please don't mix. Well, with a poire, like that's a that cheese you describe right there is very special in itself. Like they go above and beyond with their wash. So they do a salt wash, of course, but it's from Burgundy, so they do a Burgundy wash on it from their wine. So. That right there should tie it into your wine. It's all about how you serve it, how you quenelle it properly, because with that yeah. rind, yeah, it is quite pungent. But the cheese inside is a bit mellow. Like, they're supposed to be paired together. It's supposed to be quenelled properly, and it's supposed to be served with that delicious wine correctly. It's all about how you present it to your guest, how you enjoy it. Yeah, and, and, and like anything else, you know, you can tell people what you, know, what you feel, and hopefully... Th- they aren't 
sorry about this. They're not sheep and just follow along. Hopefully, <laughs> they can form their own opinion, right? You know, we so. can only hope. We can only hope. Anyway, I know there's a lot of winemakers that don't like their wines paired with chocolate, and I, yeah. I heard that a lot. That they think the tannins and the chocolate kind of kill the wine. But you know, if 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 you like it, if you have a good chocolate and you have a good wine and you like them together, then that's a good pairing for you. I mean, I am a hundred percent on that team of if, if you enjoy it, if you want yeah. Fritos with your Zen right, right. and that works for you at home right. and you're willing to buy that beautiful bottle of Zen and support the winemaker, yeah. then at home you should have Fritos and Zen. Right. Yeah, that's right. I'm not here to tell you <laughs> what to do and how to do it. I, I'll share my, what I feel I can share with you, but I'm not here to discipline you. But I'm still going to hide those Fritos whenever I have guests <laughs> over. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys, we got to wrap up this show. Um, can you give us contact information, how people can reach out to you and get cheeses or find out information about taking classes at the General's Daughter? Yes, absolutely. So our classes are available at the General's Daughter and in Yontville at the Yontville Community Center on a monthly basis. Those are pre-scheduled or we do private classes. And so my email is Shauna, S-H-E-A-N-A at V-O-M as in valleyofmoon.com or the Epicurean Connection, Epicurean and connection and on the bottom right of all of the website pages is my email and you can join our newsletter list and then the Yauntville Cheese Festival page goes live May 1st and right now if you go to that page it redirects you to our page and um, on Instagram you're uh, Epicurean Connection correct? I'm Epicurean Sonoma Sonoma and Shauna Davis and Twitter Epicurean Sonoma and Shauna Davis okay perfect alright and Bart uh, how do people get a you know, I noticed that we had three Chenin Blancs open today, but I did not see one of your Chenin Blancs open. So does that mean sales are going well of the Chenin Blanc? No, it was uh, purely we just were opening some wines that I've been wanting to taste. And, uh, okay. Uh, and, and that's it. So, yeah, we're at, uh, you know, uh, danesellers.com, all things Dane Sellers. Um, I do want to throw out that on June 21st, we're having a wine dinner at uh, Sweet D with the folks from The Girl and the Fig, and it's a pretty unique um, uh, menu this time, I, I will have to I say. Actually, I think I saw it on Instagram this morning or yesterday, yeah. but I noticed, does that mean there's no dessert? Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> I saw the what? menu, and like, I saw that it was whole, like... This will be another 10 minutes. It was like mole um, with the zin, no, right, sure and shawarma gonna, with I, the I'm grenache. Sure there's and there's going to be some sort of a dessert, but... I mean, I like um, something a little sweet at the end of my dinner. Bring a chocolate bar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, I was wondering maybe you had some, something you were going to... No, you know what? We're, um, we're, we're having fun with it. Yeah. Okay. No, no, it looks like most mostly Sorry, savory stuff. So yeah. that looks, that's good. <laughs> Kyle, I will see you uh, not at work tonight, but um, uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow, most likely. <laughs> Even if I'm right. not working, I might get called in. It's, yeah. It's, it's how our business goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we'd like to thank you for hosting us today. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I. I love cheese. I always love working with you. And, and thank you for you letting guys. us have your Chenin Blanc in our shop for all uh, those years. Yeah. Uh, thank you for supporting it. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you very much. And so, yeah, Ben, thanks for coming today. I know we didn't get, I, I know we probably have a show just with you um, talking about your experiences at Hansel over, you know, 20 years, um, because that is one of the most iconic uh, wineries um, here locally and talk about, high quality Pinot and Chard. I mean, just off the uh, charts. Uh, I was blessed uh, with nepotism. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I got to work for my dad. I got to do virtually everything on the property uh, at yeah. one time or another. 
I drove a tractor before I drove a car. Uh, so well, what is your what? Is, so you guys, what is your little wine fridge, or what do you got at home? You got a cellar, you got a wine fridge. What do you got? Actually, what do you got at your house? We're well. I have. Uh, I still have my dad's cellar uh, up at the winery. Okay. So I if have you bribe him, he might bring an aged Mayakamas to a show. <laughs> yeah. See, now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I want to know what little nuggets you I, got stashed think, away at home. <laughs> I think I'm down to forty cases right now. Oh, I, you know, uh, one quick question is I got invited. I don't know how it happened, but yeah. I got invited to a tasting with your dad and the Hansel group. Yeah, I invited you. That, that was you that made that happen. I yeah. didn't know how it happened, but I got this invitation and it was um, it was a retrospective of the wines because someone was selling a collection. And we tasted wines that didn't even have a label on it that they were unclear what they were. Yeah, um, they thought maybe it was a Bordeaux blend. Uh, it was a Zinfandel. It was a Zinfandel. We, well, we believe it's Zinfandel. Yeah. Um, At any rate, I, you know, one of my most memorable like tasting experiences in my life. So. Yeah, anyway. we did. Uh, we, well, we did two tastings. One for the press, and we were going to go through all the wine. So I invited a bunch of people up, like you, yeah. uh, to taste afterwards. Yeah. Uh, John Burdick, uh, a number of other people. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. Um, uh, but no, if you're, if, if, I mean, if we're gonna have this much in the bottle, you might as well just go and uh, oh, this radio uh, podcast. <laughs> sorry, uh, if you're gonna have uh, four inches in the bottle, you might as well invite a whole bunch of other people to come up and share them. Right. Uh, that was my attitude at the time, and it's my attitude now. And we invited a bunch of local people up who I thought would appreciate it, and but we Thank had a good you. time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, as we always say, any uh, questions, comments, feedback, we love it. Um, suggestions. Uh, you can always give us a review on iTunes. That really helps um, uh, spread the word of what we're trying to do here. And uh, we'll see you next week. Shout out to Sam. Shout out to uh, John. John. And yep. we'll hopefully catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>